This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And my aim, as always, is education. Hello, class. How's everybody today? Tonight, we are doing, or I should say redoing, an older episode that I did in 2021, and it had pretty bad audio the first time, so I'm going to do it over. I'm going to start out with a survey question. What is your favorite movie? I know everybody has a favorite movie, and everybody who knows me knows that my favorite movie is The Exorcist. I saw it once when I was like 12, and I liked it, but I don't think I fully appreciated it, like all the nuances and meanings and symbolism, until I was older, and I'd seen it a few times. And I have the deluxe director's cut DVD with all the different versions and all the prequels, commentary, and, you know, you get to hear... The director talk about this scene and what this means and why this and why that. And the actors with their opinions. So I have all this knowledge about the Exorcist movies. And you know how you think you know everything about a movie and then you learn something new and you're like, what? Well, I just learned that there's actually a convicted murderer in The Exorcist. Did you know that? If you haven't seen the movie, first of all, really, it's only like one of the most popular and, well, obviously, I think it's the best horror movie ever, but I'll give you a short history of it. It's based on a book called The Exorcist by William P. Blatty. I read that a couple times. It's an excellent book. The story's real simple. It's about a 12-year-old girl played by Linda Blair in the movie. And to make a long story short, she gets possessed by a demon. The demon, which most fans of the movie know, is named Pazuzu, and it's supposedly the name of some Middle Eastern demon. And they have two exorcists. There's an old dude, his name is Father Marin, and he's like the older, wiser priest. And he's actually faced off with this Pazuzu before. That's what the prequels are about. So he comes in and he has a younger exorcist with him, like an exorcist in training. And between the two of them, they wage war against this demon that is in the girl. Spoiler alert, they win. Then there's the exorcist 2, which most critics and fans all agree is a piece of shit. It has nothing to do with the book or the story. And exorcist 3 is based on William Blatty's book, which is a sequel to The Exorcist. It's called Legion. The book is called Legion. The movie is called The Exorcist 3. I've read that a couple times too. It's very good. The movie is really good. I think it's really badly underrated. And it's noted among horror fans for having probably the best jump scare of any movie. And if you don't know what a jump scare is, It's like something that makes you jump, like somebody pops out of a closet or something like that. And another bit of trivia you may or may not know, 
The Exorcist 3 was Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite movie. Some people who went, I was going to say went to see him, but I guess the correct terminology would be people that he lured there with the intent of harming them said that he had this movie, The Exorcist 3, on a VHS tape, and he would watch it over and over, which is pretty weird. But anyway, um, I find that really interesting. So if you've seen the movie, you might, The Exorcist, the original, you might recall in the beginning where Reagan, that's Linda Blair's character, starts to act weird and it takes a while before her mother realizes that she's possessed. Because usually if kids act weird, your first thought is puberty or something like that. And demonic possession is usually low on the list, the things you think of, which is what Reagan's mom thought. And she takes her to different doctors for a variety of medical tests. So there's a scene where Reagan is in a hospital four tests, which in real life, I don't know if you know this, if somebody thinks that they are possessed, it's usually thought to be some kind of mental illness or an undiagnosed physical thing like epilepsy or something wrong with their brain. So one of the tests that Reagan has in the movie is called a cerebral angiogram. And this is a real thing. You see her in the scene She's in a hospital, she's laying on a table, and she's injected with some kind of dye. This is basically an x-ray of the blood vessels in your head. And it's used to tell if you have blood clots that are floating around, or if you had a stroke, or things like that. And in this procedure, you see her being injected with something that is, it's actually in real life, it's radioactive dye. They call it contrast. If you've ever had an MRI or a CT, they might put this stuff in you called contrast, goes in through an IV, and what it does, it kind of lights up blood vessels or whatever it is that they're trying to look at. So that's what they're pretending to inject into Reagan during this scene. And the dude, the technician who was doing the test and who's talking to her, is the subject of today's episode. His name is Paul Bateson, and he actually did kill somebody, which is what we're going to talk about. And he was also a suspected serial killer. So a little bit about him. Paul Bateson, a.k.a. Johnny Johnson, which is a real original alias, was born on August 24, 1940, in Lansdale, Pennsylvania which is over across the state from me near Philadelphia. His dad was a metallurgist. And in the early 60s, Paul went into the army. He was stationed in Germany. And he said that because he was bored, he started drinking, which wasn't a good idea because it became a bad habit. So in 1964, he moved to New York City and he started a relationship with a dude who was somehow involved in the music business. And Paul said that he identified as, quote, not exclusively gay. I don't really know what that means, if he means bisexual. I don't know if that was a term in these days. 
but it doesn't really matter. So he trained as a neurologic radiation technician, which is basically somebody who takes x-rays but specializes in the neurological area. This was at NYU Medical Center. He worked there for a while, and he worked for a guy named Dr. Barton Lane. So one day he's at work doing one of these cerebral angiograms, and who comes in but William Friedkin, who was the director of The Exorcist. Supposedly, Friedkin was working on the script, and what he planned to do for the shoot, which was to take place the following year in 1972, he knew that he wanted some kind of medical test in the movie. And I don't know if he knew Dr. Lane or if he was just literally wandering around the hospital and somehow happened upon this doctor and said, hey, I'm making a movie. Do you have a procedure I could see? But Dr. Lane said, well, you can watch this particular test, which is, this is a cerebral angiogram. And Paul Bateson happened to be the tech doing the test. There was also a nurse in the room, by the way. So what they do is they insert this dye into your carotid artery, which is in your neck. And if you know anything about medicine, you know that if you cut an artery or hit an artery, you have a whole bunch of blood, which is what happens basically Friedkin watches this test, and he sees as soon as they put the needle into this this person's carotid artery, blood goes everywhere. And it's like bright red blood because it's arterial blood. It spurts out, and it looks kind of horrifying. And I would hope that today they have some kind of better system that they don't make such a mess. But anyway, Friedkin is like, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want in my movie. And he said he wanted Dr. Lane, Paul, who happened to be the tech, and this nurse, whose name was Nancy. He's like, I want all three of you just to play yourselves and do just what you do every day. And they're like, well, okay. So what's funny is I heard that when the movie came out in theaters in 1973, that this movie, The Exorcist, was said to be incredibly disturbing, and people would, like, faint and puke and everything. And nowadays, it's like, you know, nothing. But I think back then, people weren't used to the type of gore and things that we have in movies today. And anyway, it wasn't any of the exorcism scenes that were so disturbing to people, But it was this scene with the medical test and the arterial blood spurting out that was said to be the most disturbing to people. Well, it was so accurate that they actually used this clip or this part of the movie in medical schools to show doctors and training that this is the proper way to do this test. So all of his co-workers spoke very highly of Paul Bateson. They said he had a very good bedside manner. He was really good with patients. And Dr. Lane, his boss, said, quote, He was the chief neurological rad tech. He was the most experienced and he was the best. He taught me an awful lot and I consider him a good friend. 
when you do radiology, even though there's the radiologist who's kind of the doctor, you also have a very important support team, and I couldn't have done it without Paul. He was really excellent. I didn't realize until many years later that he had killed a man. I thought it was bizarre. I just had no idea, end quote. I guess it would be really weird to pick up a newspaper and read that somebody you worked closely with had been sentenced for murder. So William Friedkin, the director, told thehollywoodreporter.com, quote, He was a really nice young guy about four or five years later after the film. I see the front page of the New York Post and the Daily News, and he's accused of five or six murders, and they were murders in the S&M bars on the west side of Manhattan. His lawyer's name was in the story. I'm sitting with him in his cell. He is very cheerful. He said, I remember killing this one guy. I cut him up, and I put his body parts in a plastic bag and threw it in the East River. Well, that is how they got him. At the bottom of the bag, in a very small print that you can't even read, it says Property of NYC Medical Center, Neuropsychiatric Center. He said, that's the only one I remember, but they want me to confess to another five or six. And Friedkin said, well, what are you going to do? And Paul said, well, I'm thinking it over because if I confess to six or seven of these, they'll lower the sentence. End quote. So, what the fuck is this? Like, if you confess to a series of murders, you'll get a lower sentence. There's a lot of things wrong with what Friedkin says. First of all, that in itself does not make any sense. If you confess to being a serial killer, you'll get less time than if you just committed one. There's no logic at all to that. Then he said that he sat in the cell with him, with Paul and all the people I've ever talked to in jails or prisons, you never get to sit in their cell. You see them in the visitor room, and sometimes you don't, don't even get to have contact with them. Sometimes you have to talk to them through the glass, or you have to pick up a phone, and they pick up a phone on the other side, and you talk that way. So there's no way that he sat in a cell and talked to Paul Bateson. And then he said that he confessed to a series of killings, which I'm going to tell you about in a few minutes. He cut them up and put the body parts in a bag, blah, blah, blah. And most people who are familiar with Paul Bateson and this series of murders have a very hard time believing this. And we'll talk about that later. You're probably wondering what the other series of murders is. And in New York City, between 1975 and 1977, there was an unsolved series of murders committed by the same person, and they called them the Copy Murders. That's an acronym for Circumstances Unknown Pending Police Investigation, which, if you think about it, could be the name for any unsolved murders. So that's kind of dumb. But the other name that they had for them wasn't very nice, but I'll tell you what it was anyway, because I'm sure you want to know. It was the quote-unquote fag-in-the-bag murders. They found six dismembered bodies in bags in Hudson River, and they figured out that they were gay men, 
And how do they know that they were gay men? Well, the clothes on the bodies they managed to trace to fetish shops in Greenwich Village, which is a section of New York City that catered to gay men. So the killer is also probably a gay man, because that's usually how it works. Supposedly, and we have no real proof of this, I guess it's like a rumor, supposedly the bags had markings on them that said they were somehow property of or connected to New York University's Medical Center Neuropsychiatric Unit, and whoever did the autopsy said that the dismemberment seemed to be committed by somebody who was skilled with a knife or who was familiar with anatomy. The police publicly suggested that Paul Bateson was a suspect because he was gay. He hung around the gay community, and he killed one gay man. Oh, and he worked at NYU Medical Center. Um, you don't have to be a, a detective to know that that is pretty weak. So this is weird. Paul told somebody, I think it was a reporter, that he starred in The Exorcist as revenge because his dad used to make him stay home from Saturday matinees and listen to opera music. And he wasn't like a movie star. He was just literally at work doing his job and some film director just happens to walk in and he's like, hey, do you want to be in my movie? He didn't aspire to be in movies or anything like that. He was never in any other movie or TV or anything. It was just this one-shot deal. After the movie was released, Paul started drinking again and it got so bad that it affected his work, as it does, you know. So he was fired in 1975. He held a series of odd jobs, and he couldn't keep any of them very long because of his drinking. He did repair work, cleaning, and this one's kind of funny. He worked at a porn theater taking tickets, but he got fired from that. And I don't know how you can possibly screw that up, but he did. So all of this bad shit happened to him. His mom died of a stroke. His brother committed suicide. And then, remember, I told you he was going out with some guy who was in the music business? Well, he ended the relationship, so Paul got depressed. And by 1977, he was drinking really heavy, like a quart of vodka a day. He did go to AA and tried to sober up, but he didn't really do too good at that. Now, I mentioned that he was in the gay scene in New York City, which at that time included bars on Christopher Street, and he was a regular in these bars. He marched in the gay pride parade, and he was more of an introvert. He kind of kept to himself, like he would usually stay home and drink, except at night when he would go out to the bars. When he was going out with this dude, they would do fun stuff, like drink at a hotel called the Pierre, and this is a luxury hotel near Central Park, they would go to this place called Cherry Grove. They call it The Grove. It's on Fire Island. It's like a gay hangout, or it was. It looks really cool there. And he later quoted as saying, quote, After a few shots, I'd shave and get dressed. But after I drank, I had no energy left to move. End quote. So I'll talk about his psychology later on, but that to me is an indicator of depression. When Paul went out, he preferred to go to something called leather bars. 
which were started in the 70s. And he said, quote, leather impresses me. This was like a subculture. The leather dress was part of sex acts. I'm not sure exactly how that goes, but they would wear leather-like jackets and vests and boots, chaps. It was mostly gay men in this leather scene. And they did get into BDSM, which is, you know, bondage, domination, sadomasochism. So September 13th, 1977, Paul goes to this gay bar called Badlands. And at this time, had actually been sober for three months. Now, all the stuff I'm going to say now is what he said to a guy named Arthur Bell, who was a journalist and also a gay rights activist. And he wrote this in a story in a newspaper called The Village Voice. This is where we're getting this information from. So at this bar called Badlands, Paul met a guy named Addison Verrill. And let me tell you a little bit about Addison Verrill. He was born on August 11th, 1941, so he was 36 when he met Paul. His dad's name was Addison also. His mom was Helen. He went by the name Ad. He graduated from Princeton in 1963 with a degree in English, and he spent three years in the Peace Corps in Nigeria. He was a film critic for Variety magazine, and he'd been there for 10 years. He was very active in the gay community, and by that, I mean he was almost kind of a celebrity. Like, he would walk into a bar and everybody be like, hey, Ad is here. Like, everybody knew him. He's buried in Connecticut, and his gravestone has the quotation, Good night, sweet prince. Does anybody know what Shakespeare play that's from? It's from Hamlet. And the weird thing is, I mean, this is just a total coincidence, but I just picked up on it and I thought that was kind of weird. Addison lived on a street called Horatio Street. So they're in this bar, and Addison offers to buy Paul a beer. And of course, this turns into another beer and another beer. And they also did some cocaine and something called poppers, which are inhalants. And these are actually amyl nitrate. They were common in the gay sex clubs in the 70s. So they're doing cocaine, and they're doing these popper things, and both of these make your heart rate increase, and I don't know how they weren't dead with all this shit, plus all the booze, plus they're smoking weed, and it makes me wonder the kind of state these two were in, and what effect, if any, it had on what happened. So at 3 a.m., they leave this bar, and they went to another leather bar called Mineshaft. According to Addison's friends, he wasn't into the kink there, but he was regular, and he would go there and, quote, hold court. That's how popular he was. He was so, um, I guess he had like a magnetic presence. Like, just his presence attracted other people, if you can imagine that kind of person. So Paul told this Arthur Bell guy, that he didn't realize that Addison was such a superstar and he wanted to go home with him. He was like, I guess, kind of in love, like, wow, you know, really impressed. And it made me think that he sounded like starstruck. So I looked up Mineshaft and it was 
a men-only private BDSM sex club. It closed in 1985, and it listed the facilities that they offered. A roof deck, which sounds cool, clothes check, private rooms, dungeons. I think that's all we need to know. Anyway, they're at this bar, and they stayed there till 6 a.m. Now, remember, this is a private club, so they don't have to close at a certain time. They took a taxi back to Addison's 19th floor studio apartment on Horatio Street, and it said that Ad was reluctant because he had to get up early and work on a story, you know, for his newspaper. So what do you think they do there? Well, they do that later. But before that, they drink more and do more cocaine. So I don't know how these dudes even functioned at this point. So at 7.30 a.m., they had sex, and afterwards, now remember, this is as told to Arthur Bell. Paul said that he realized that Addison didn't want a relationship. I'm imagining that it was some sort of, like, they had sex, and then they're like, you know, the conversation where it's like, um, you know, do you want to see me again, or do you want to go out again, or you won't want to get together, or can I call you, whatever, like something to that effect. And Paul, I think, was lonely and was looking for a relationship. And I'm kind of guessing that Addison said something that indicated that he just wanted a one-night stand. So Paul was upset and said, quote, something hit me. Ad hadn't been reciprocal. It wasn't just the sex act itself that wasn't reciprocal. It was the soul act, too. I wanted a lasting thing, something that would go beyond sex, into friendship, a lover, or marriage, end quote. And I just can't help thinking, is it possible that he wasn't reciprocating because he was stoned out of his mind? So he goes on. This is Paul. Quote, I can't fathom exactly what I did. I concede that it was my alcoholism. There's a stigma placed on alcoholics, but I needed money, and I hated the rejection. It was the rejection that triggered things. Something flared in my head. I decided to do something I'd never done before. I took a heavy frying pan from the kitchen and knocked Addison out. Then I went into the drawer in the kitchen, removed a knife, and stuck it into his chest. I plunged it too high. I should have stuck it a little bit more towards the center left, end quote. Then Paul took $57, a credit card, Addison's passport, which is beyond me what he thought he was going to do with that, but remember the state of mind he's in, and some of his clothes. Not surprisingly, he used the money to buy booze, and he was drunk for the rest of that day. He was seen later that night at a popular bathhouse where gay men would congregate. And the next day, Addison's body was found in his apartment. I don't know who found his body. I don't know if it was a friend, neighbor, whatever. But there were signs of a struggle, and they noticed that he'd been beaten and stabbed. The police found this mysterious, sticky white substance on the floor. And they looked around and it didn't take a master detective to figure out that Addison had had company because there were glasses that were like half full of whatever they were drinking 
sitting around in empty beer cans. And it looked like he had been entertaining somebody. There were no signs of forced entry. They noticed the things that had been taken. So this Art Bell guy was a friend of Addison, and he wrote an article in the Village Voice in which he criticized the police and the media and said that they didn't take murders of gay men seriously enough and blamed them all on, quote, sexual encounters gone wrong. He said that the killer was a psychopath based on, well, nothing really. I don't even know if he actually knew the definition of psychopath. So several days later, Paul calls Arthur Bell at his house. And I guess this was back in the day when you could look up somebody's phone number in the phone book. And Paul said, quote, I like your story and I like your writing, but I'm not a psychopath, end quote. And Arthur Bell's like, oh, shit, this could be the killer. So he later told the police that he was eager to talk, Paul was, and was boasting, but showed remorse. And according to Arthur, he talked to Paul for 20 minutes and said that he was the son of an orchestra leader, which isn't true, and that he had a wife in Germany, which we have no proof of. And he said that he had wanted to be a dancer when he was younger, and that he wanted to atone for this crime because today was Yom Kippur, which is the Jewish Day of Atonement. Then he said, quote, But I don't want to give myself up. I wouldn't be able to practice again. I'd lose my license, end quote. So Arthur's like, well, what kind of a license are you talking about? He meant his rad tech license, and Paul wouldn't tell him because he was smart enough to know that that could help to identify him. So, and I don't know how this came up, but Paul said that there was some white stuff on the floor and that it was Crisco. I don't know if he went on to explain it or if Arthur knew this, but Crisco is used or was used as a um, lube. I think you know what I'm talking about. At the end of the conversation, Arthur called the police and told them about this. And the police were excited and said this is the first good lead that they'd had. So the police come to Art's apartment at like 11 at night and they were worried about his safety because obviously he'd just been talking or most likely been talking to a killer and they wanted to be there in case he called back. And they knew this was the real deal because he knew about the Crisco and the stolen credit cards and this stuff hadn't been made public. So the police are there and Paul didn't call back, but somebody else did. It seemed like Paul really was on a confessing spree because he called somebody else that was a mutual friend of both him and Arthur Bell. This guy, who called himself Mitch, I don't think he, that was his real name, but he called Arthur while the police were there. And he's like, I know who the killer is because he just called me and confessed. And this Mitch said that he recognized his voice. But he said his name is Paul Bateson. I know him because we dried out together in St. Vincent's Hospital. In case you don't know, that means that they were in alcohol rehab together, like detox. That's how he knew him. 
So the police went right to Paul's apartment on East 12th Street. And they said when they got there, he was lying around drunk. Imagine that. And they asked him if he knew why they were there. And he pointed to a copy of the Village Voice on the table. And he goes, well, that's probably why. So they took him to the station and he gave a written statement. They eventually tracked down this Mitch character and brought him in to give a statement also. So Paul was charged with second-degree murder, and he was detained at Rikers Island. And a month later, Arthur Bell went to interview him, and they talked about his life. He said that Joe was helping him get sober again. And the only thing he didn't like about being in jail was that he was missing the coming season of the Joffrey Ballet. He wouldn't discuss the crime on the advice of his attorney, but he talked about the trial and he said that he pled not guilty and he expected to be found not guilty, which is a little strange because remember he was so open just a little while ago about, you know, literally calling everybody and telling them what he did. He said, quote, a lot of people will be hurt, parents, friends, then I'll tear up my roots and settle somewhere else, end quote. So he really expected to get off, and he said as soon as he did, he planned to move somewhere else. The trial was in March of 1979. It lasted four days. Paul's attorney tried to have his confession suppressed. He claimed that Paul hadn't been Mirandized when he confessed, and also that he had been drunk. But nobody bought that. The DA, William Hoyt, called him a psychopath and said that he was responsible for the bag murders, remember those, but he admitted that he had no direct proof of this. And come to think of it, I don't know how he was allowed to bring up his possible involvement in other murders in the trial for Addison's murder. He claimed that Paul had confessed to these murders in a conversation with a guy named Richard Ryan. Now, Richard Ryan was a friend of Paul who testified for the prosecution, and he said that he also got a call from Paul on the night he was calling everybody and confessing. Supposedly, he said, supposedly, he said, quote, killing is easy. Getting rid of the bodies is the hard part, end quote. The DA pointed out to the court that the police had evidence that although there was no direct proof that Paul committed these bag murders, that there were six bodies, the torsos of which were found floating in the Hudson, wrapped up in plastic garbage bags. And in all six cases, the medical examiner said that the person who would cut up the bodies was either a butcher or a person with medical knowledge because of the way the cuts were done. Paul told the judge, quote, I still contend that I am not guilty of the crimes and I am not the person described by Mr. Hoyt at all. I feel a great loss for Mr. Verrill. I am not at all the type of person as he has described me, end quote. He was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to 20 years to life. And the judge said that the connection to the bag murders was too ephemeral to merit any weight in sentencing. So the judge really didn't buy this either. Paul served 24 years and three months. and He was released in August 2003 from the Arthur Keel Correctional Facility on Staten Island. 
and his parole was successfully completed in 2008. And then he just kind of disappeared. Nobody really knows what happened to him. Somebody heard that he moved to upstate New York. Records show that a Paul F. Bateson, with the same date of birth as Paul, died in 2012. He would have been 72. In all likelihood, he's dead now. But remember I told you that William Friedkin visited him in jail, and it was like a bizarre conversation. He claimed he went inside the cell and said this and that, and I said this is bullshit because, you know, this and that. This experience of talking to Paul and, I guess, the unsolved gay murders inspired Friedkin to make another movie. This was a 1980 movie called Cruising. It, it actually sounds pretty good. It's about the gay leather subculture in New York City, and in the movie, there's a serial killer who's stalking and killing the men in this subculture. It's based on a 1970 novel by Gerald Walker. The movie stars El Pacino, and it's classified as an erotic thriller. It wasn't real popular. There are some bars in the movie, and um, I try to say this with, without laughing. They're called Ramrod in the Cockpit. Friedkin wanted to film in Mineshaft, but they wouldn't let him. So what he did was he took regulars from Mineshaft and used them as extras in the movie. El Pacino actually went into Mineshaft and spent some time in there to research his role. This novel is also partly based on real life. The murders, which were never solved, um, there was a an undercover cop from NYPD named Randy Jurgensen, who went undercover in these leather bars, which was a good idea, but unfortunately nothing ever came of it. And like I said, those crimes were never solved. Another connection to TV and movies, I'm sure everybody but me has seen the Netflix series Mindhunter. Paul Bateson, or somebody playing him, appears in the second season of Mindhunter for just a few minutes. And he's played by a dude named Morgan Kelly. I saw a picture of him and I actually thought it was Paul Bateson because they look exactly the same. So my analysis, and of course my disclaimer, I'm not a mental health professional. I can't diagnose anybody. You know the, the drill. I don't think that Paul Bateson committed the dismemberment or the bag murders. It just doesn't fit with him. Those sound like the work of somebody who is an organized killer, who stalked his victims, and the disposal sounds like a cold-blooded, methodical, thought-out thing. I think that when Paul killed Addison, it was just they were both really fucked up on all these drugs, and it was a heat-of-the-moment or passion type of killing. I think that Paul was depressed and lonely, and he was looking for a relationship, and he met Addison and kind of got his hopes up, and then Addison said something I'm sure was totally innocent, to diminish his hopes, so Paul got upset and flew into a rage. And then he obviously felt some remorse because, remember, he called all these people, and we know of three that he called. And I don't think he was a psychopath. Nothing in his personality or behavior fits the definition of antisocial personality. I just think it was an unfortunate heat-of-the-moment crime. 
And as far as when they tried to say that the bodies in the bags were cut up and it looked like the person had medical training, Paul was an x-ray tech. <laughs> he wasn't a surgeon. There's quite a difference there. Remember when he talked about stabbing Addison, he said that he stabbed the wrong part of him, like that he should have stabbed a different part on his chest or something. If he had so much knowledge about anatomy, he would have known the right place to stab. So that is the story of Paul Bateson. He's sometimes called the exorcist killer and the unfortunate not solved bag murders of New York City. This episode is dedicated to Addison. Good night, sweet prince. <laughs>